So I have this thing, you know, where I try not to wish ill upon anyone, but sometimes people really piss me off, right? So I have this thing where when I get really mad at someone, you know, whether it's like somebody like hurt my friend or whatever, cut me off in traffic because it's, you know, I'll be like, I hope you slip on a banana peel. And the reason I picked that (laughs) is because slipping on a banana peel could be totally inconsequential, right? Like you could slip on a banana peel and recover instantly and like go about your day and nothing happens. Or you could slip on a banana peel and like fracture some shit and get really hurt and be stuck like, you know, like in a cast for a long time or have something really bad happen. And that's the part I leave up to God. You know, so I'm like, so I'm like, listen, I hope you slip on a banana peel. God, who knows about the rest of your life, like knows whether like you're having a bad day. And so you just like, or like, you just didn't see me or like, whatever, like God gets to decide whether you deserve, you know, the like really bad banana peel slip or whether you (laughs) can just get away with just like a momentary, like, oh, oops, okay. And like, move on, you know, like maybe your dignity's hurt a little bit, but nothing more. So it turns out when you were talking about having violent fantasies about the ruling class. It's really just various forms of banana peel. (laughs) Well, you know, yeah. (laughs) I mean, maybe some people I think should be run over by a truck full of banana Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I'm a comedian in Chicago. Eight years ago, I was in a coma, but I woke up and I've got questions and I'm asking them of my guests, like today's guest, Eman Abdelhadi. She's amazing. She wrote a book, co-wrote a book called Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. So by those dates, you can tell that this is a speculative oral history in which, in the future, New York and other places move toward a communist society. And it's fucking rad, man. The book's so good. I just just devoured it. I had been planning on reading it, had pre-ordered, thanks to someone I follow on Twitter, and started it right before a man was at the Socialism 2022 conference here in Chicago, who were nice enough to hook me up with a press pass. I just, I can't please read this book. The The link to buy the book and do buy it and buy it from Common Notions, the publisher, not from Amazon. Don't, don't buy the communist oral history book from Amazon. You know, let's build the world we want to live in. But my conversation with MN was, by the time we were logging off, it felt like saying goodbye to a friend a little bit. It was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to go exactly. If you read the book, please tell me about it. Email me, thisisdavemar at gmail.com. You can also call the show, 313-MISSED-URA. That is also 313-647-8872. You can also use those things with any thoughts you have about the show. If you leave a review in your Apple Podcasts app, that would be stellar. Subscribe, tell a friend, or best yet, join the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dave Marr. Even at the $5 level, you get full conversations. There's a lot more to this conversation that Patreon folks are getting to hear. And at the $15 level, you get a shout out. So thank you to Kurt Chang, Katie Llewellyn, Susie Carroll, Fred Fidawad, John Lee, Shuba Singh, and Debo for supporting the show at that level. And I almost forgot to say that I'm doing something new this week because a man was not the only co-writer on this book. Emmy O'Brien also wrote the book with her, and I am releasing... My interview with Emmy O'Brien this week as well. Never released two full episodes in the same week. I think it's going to be on Friday, but don't hold me to that. Maybe it'll be earlier. Both the conversations were fantastic, and I wanted to present them in the same week so you could get a spirit of them kind of bouncing off of each other. 
one kind of fun side note about the book. It gave me such a taste for speculative fiction in the near future that I have since talking to a man and reading the book devoured all of the Purge movies and two seasons of the TV show. So, you know, it's definitely not at the level that everything for everyone is at. Uh, now's not the time or place for my thoughts on The Purge, but the place for that is my newsletter, and I will be talking about The Purge this week in my newsletter, Definitive Answers, and you can find a link to sign up for that in the show notes. Again, read this fucking book, everything for everyone, and let's talk about it. Please enjoy this conversation with Eman Abdelhadi. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatan. When I'm in Shatan, I treat it like it's I think my favorite thing and the thing that got me thinking about how much fun it must have been for you to write it was talking about your activities in old age. <laughs> and Michelle is like meditating and preparing for death, which I love. And then you said stand up. So That's right. tell me about the stand-up. What's, yeah. the, what's the experience or what's the fantasy? What's happening there? Yeah. So I have done some stand-up. Um, I actually love doing stand-up. I don't have as much time in my life for it. And I think that's why I put it in the book, you know, as a thing. Um, uh, so I actually, I did my first stand-up. I did a lot of storytelling when I lived in New York and a lot of it would be comedic, but it was never, I mean, I did some performance art, but never. At storytelling like, shows? Yeah, or like poetry shows yeah. or open mic nights, things like mm -hmm. that. I was like in that world. And then, um, but in uh, when I was in graduate school, so at the very end of my PhD, for the last two years, I needed external funding, and I went to Abu Dhabi, uh, of all places. <laughs> NYU has a branch in Abu Dhabi. Um, yeah, so I got a fellowship there, and so I went off to Abu Dhabi to write my dissertation, which took two years. And um, while I was there... I was really missing all the like artsy spaces. I mean, there are art spaces there, but they're all very formal and hyper-managed. And I was really missing the kind of scene of like, you know, salons and people's living rooms and, yeah. you know, random bars with open mic nights, like the Brooklyn life, right? Um, so anyway, so I was in conversation with a couple of people and a friend of mine, she said, well, I've been writing comedy and I know a few people who are trying to write comedy and we want to do like a little workshop together and then have our own little like underground comedy show and I was oh, wait, like this was a friend in Abu Dhabi in Abu Dhabi yes on campus and I was like um hell yes let's do this um so we got together, we like wrote comedy um, and we would like kind of workshop it together. And then we held this like underground thing, which was immensely popular because there was just this like huge craving for like a kind of underground space. Like we just booked a lounge on campus and we, you know, each like had worked out our materials and stuff. And so I did it and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, it's just like the perfect combination of preparation and improv, you know, where it's yeah. like I had my joke, you know, of course, you know. Um, and I just was like, I love this so much. So we did that a couple more times and it was like very popular. Uh, and it became this thing on campus, like the that these little comedy nights. Um, right. And then when I got back to, when I moved, so after Abu Dhabi, I got. I moved to Chicago. What uh, country I is it in, by the way? The UAE. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's about an hour and a half away. It's the capital of the UAE. It's an hour and a half away from Dubai. Um, yeah. I have no fucking clue the geography. I'm like, yeah. oh, sure. An hour and a half from Dubai. Uh, okay, Dubai, cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Arabian so get... Peninsula. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you get back to Chicago. So I get back to Chicago and then I started doing a few, I did like a few kind of small shows. Like, you know, a friend of mine was like this show that he ran. Um, 
and I did that once, and then I did. Wait, who was the friend? His name is Cal. Cal Jazeera is his. Oh, that name is familiar. Yeah. Okay. okay. And then there was a organization that my now housemate runs called Iowa, which is like a queer Swana party, like a queer Arab party, uh, Arab and Middle Eastern. Um, and uh, they hosted this like big open mic night. So then I was one of the featured performers or whatever. So I was like really enjoying it. And I was like, this is a thing. This is going to be like my Chicago hobby, you know. Um, uh, but then the pandemic happened. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So wow. then, yeah, the pandemic happened and I have so much less time than I do. And even now, like it doesn't, you know, I haven't really like stepped back into those spaces. So it's something yeah. I want to spend more time doing because I just really enjoy it. And actually just these last couple of months, I've been writing more um, material, but um yeah, so I think that's I maybe that craving came out in the book, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, well, the yeah. thing that's like both appealing and all of the the parts of being a the the toxic parts of being a stand up that I've like ingrained, like those parts resent this thing, which right. is like here here's my hobby, <laughs> and 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 so those parts are like, what the fuck? Just how can you just do this in your 80s or 90s as your hobby but really the part of me is like oh the freedom of just doing this thing that yeah. i'm trying to fucking squeeze for all it's worth as just like a way of like it, it like expressing yourself yeah. in the communist future you yeah know? i mean and this is a future in which you don't have to like scrape by to live as an artist right like whatever creative outlets that you have don't have to be like disciplined into a monetized form the way they have to now, right? Uh, where you just have to like have this horrible dance between how do I make money off of the thing that I love and also mm-hmm. do the thing that I love in a way that has any integrity at all. Right. Thing that, you know, is so hard. Um, so, so ideally in this it, that's world. That's what would be if I, if I were writing chapters or adding chapters and I were an interviewer, I'd have to explain to people like what Patreon was. And they would be like, what, you know, what is that? What <laughs> the that would fuck? Be like, yeah. 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 So we, and we had to think about rewards and bonuses, the, uh, the fucking, uh, kick, the Kickstarter economy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, we definitely don't want Patreons or Substacks or whatever in the future. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. No, thank you. Just scenes yeah. and underground comedy shows. Yeah. Like art for art's sake. Can you imagine? Yeah. I I can. I can because you know what's ironic is spending, you know, growing up a suburban white guy, like being, being, sheltered from having to think about a lot of the things that uh, other people had to think about and mm-hmm. that I think about now. Uh, art for art's sake was what I thought about all the time. Yeah. That. And it makes sense that when I felt more resourced, that was yeah. what my concern was, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I just like, yeah, I love to dwell on the idea of the society in which everybody has that. Right. Like I, I just think, We've never seen anything like it, you know, just the idea that everybody's creative energy would have room to, to flourish. I just can't even imagine what that would look like. It's like, there are no artists because everybody's an artist Mm -hmm, in this future. mm -hmm. Even that, like, I love it and makes me a bit uncomfortable to be like, but I've invested so much identity into being, right. you know, like this, like, or just so many people who just want ways of myself included ways to divide people and, and, you know, well, if, if we've never had this thing, it couldn't exist. So yeah. what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think a, a lot about, um, you know, as I, you know, I grew up, 
I grew up uh, in a poor house, poor but upwardly mobile household. It's a typical thing with like an immigrant family where like we had a lot of human capital, what we call human capital in sociology, right? Like we had basically <laughs> high education. Yeah, you're not going to be able to just drop yeah, social, no say r- social reproductive like, theory here, okay? I need that shit explained ap- to me. Apologies. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we had a lot of, you know, we had high education. We had like sort of middle class like values, big quotation marks there. Um but like we were poor, you know, we were well below the poverty line my whole life. Um, and, uh, and so, and I think a lot about the ways that as a kid, you know, I was quickly identified as someone who was good at school. Right. Um, and I got so intensely funneled into only doing the things that I was really good at, you know, and it was like the things that I had an instinct for. Um, so, you know, I just like was funneled towards school. I was funneled towards certain subjects. And I think one of the great joys of my life as an adult has been giving myself permission to do things I'm not good at, but that bring me pleasure. You know, the idea that, but, but this is such a, um, such a specific feature of our moment and our society that, we are being disciplined even from such a young age into becoming ideal workers. Right. So the question is like, even, and, and we, and we have it in such like kind of like rosy terms, like find your passion, find your talent. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And it's like, but if your passion is something you're not good at, nobody's going to encourage you to like continue to do it. Right. The idea is that like eventually by finding your passion, you can be competitive on a marketplace in a marketplace in which you sell that passion or you sell your productive capacity to you know for that passion and that's the ultimate sign of success right um and I don't know I think a lot about a world in which you don't have to do that like you you might love to do the things that you're really good at um and in that case, you do them and great. But if you don't, like, you know, like you get to be a whole person and not just primarily the worker version of yourself, you know? Yeah, there's actually, so I teach a bit about one of the thing, I have a class about like, like my version of the artist's way. Sort uh-huh. Of. Um, and I love that one book. Of the, I, yeah, it's great. It's, it's cliche, of, it's but I love it. It's changed my yeah, life. Man. Yeah. So are you familiar with Elizabeth Gilbert's uh like creativity writing stuff? Mm-mm. Okay. So she's she wrote Eat Pray Love. Oh, as, sure. Yeah, and and all I was her, like why is that familiar? Yeah, yeah, but she wrote this book called Big Magic that's like great about creativity. Okay. And um one of the things she advocates is like she talks about finding your passion and she's a little bit like fuck your passion. Like, don't put the pressure on yourself to find your passion. Side note, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the people I know who, like, feel guilty because they don't know what their passion is or, like, haven't found it are women. Like, I think there's a – I think that's a big Mm -hmm. division too. But she's like, follow your curiosity. Mm. And she's like, one day I was looking out my window at my garden and I was wondering why these one flowers were this certain way. And then she tells this whole story of like getting really into gardening and then thinking about where these flowers come from and that leading to this whole book that she wrote. Mm. But then I tell my students, but also it's okay if it doesn't lead to a book, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But I, yeah, that curiosity is like, is so much more, anything that just like takes the anxiety out. Yeah. It reminds me of, I mean, when you say like, sometimes it's okay for it to not lead to something. It reminds me of, uh, have you read how to do nothing? That book. (laughs) It's, I, it's one of the books that I've started, but not. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, I, I, in a way by not reading how to do nothing, aren't I doing doing it? You know, (laughs) exactly. I mean, I think, I think one of the key points of the book, and I don't know that you have to finish it in order to like get this out of it, but Mm -hmm. one of the key points is the idea of sort of observing the world around you, you know, like of really kind of 
sitting in the kind of day-to-day, you know, as opposed to being like very purpose-driven all the time, um, but to just like chill. She talks about bird watching a lot. She's a bird watcher. Um, and I got to tell you, there's a bird sanctuary close to, you know, in, in South Shore. That's like, it's like a oh, sure. 15 minute bike ride from my house. Um, and I've been there and it is beautiful, but I do not have the patience for bird watching. <laughs> I, I learned this very quickly about myself. I was like, oh, dope. There's a bird. Okay. I got to go. <laughs> like, I was like, hello. Bird. That's a brown one. That's a brown one. That's a brown one. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but. Like, but I think, but I totally, you know, but I, but I think about that book when I'm like walking home from the office and I like linger in front of someone's pretty rose bush or, you yeah. know, um, like stop to look at the shape of the clouds or, you know, just these like moments of presence um, where I'm like, what is actually also my sensual curiosity, right? Like, what are my five senses? Like, yeah. Like, curious about you know like what smells do I want to smell and what do I want to see and like you know feel um I don't know I I've been thinking about that a lot what do you hope happens when you die oh the little Muslim the little good Muslim girl in me is like (laughs) it's like I'm fighting all the little versions of me are fighting in my head about how to answer this question but if I am to be 100% honest with you, I hope nothing happens. I hope absolutely nothing happens. Like my real hope for humanity and for myself is that when we die, we just cease to exist. Like we don't just don't have to do this anymore. You know, like done. Why is that your hope? Because life is so exhausting. I mean, I know that's a sad thing to say, but I just, I I have no, I, I don't know. I just, I have no desire to like, you know, I think a lifetime is a long time. And like, you know, I think th- there's something comforting to the, to the idea that it ends. Can I trouble this? Of course, please. So you write this book of... <laughs> a future that has never existed. Yep. What if there were, and I understand, tell me if I'm, if I'm like getting you wrong, but part of the reason you would hope for nothing is that the something you have known is, is exhausting. That's true. But, but, does that mean that a part of you can't imagine a something that's not exhausting? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah. Like, so if I lived, I, yeah, I really like this thought experiment. So if I lived in like the utopic version of the world, like the end of our novel, right. And like, sure. You know what I want to then live longer or is that sort of a, a good rephrase of your may that's that's a good way to think of it or if you knew that despite our attempts to chisel away at this flawed utopia mm-hmm. um that on the other side of death awaited a version of it for real mm. would that um yeah, would would that hold appeal for you? Hmm. I suppose so. I think, but I think I would still want it to end. Like, like maybe a second life that's better that also ends. You know, would okay. would would appeal to me more than the idea of infinity. I think is very difficult for me. Um, you know, even though I grew up in a tradition that, that, you know, where, in which you're supposed to aspire to like a sort of like an infinite, a life, a second life of infinite pleasure. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the, but I don't, I don't, I've never experienced any pleasure to not have a beginning, middle and end. Um, 
and even in moments in which life wasn't so exhausting, right? Like there's just, I feel like there's just a life cycle to things that seems intertwined with being human, right? Like there's a sense in which like everything, no matter how good it is, seems to, seems to, um, wane over time in its, in its, in what it can give you, right? Like that we just kind of cycle, um, uh, through feelings, you know? Um, so yeah, or maybe it's just hard for me to also escape the idea of the body decaying in a particular way, you know? So I don't know, I guess it would also matter what, which version of my body I could live in and in an afterlife as well. Okay. Um, Is there a version of your body so far that you would choose? Like a, a version that I've lived in. Yes. Now. Yes. 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 I guess if I had to pick, I'd pick my current one. Um, you know, I'm in. Okay. I'm. I'm in. I'm probably in the best shape of my life, actually, <laughs> um, in terms of like working out and stuff. But, um, but more so, I think I'd want my current relationship with my body, and that I've come to appreciate it. In, a, in mm. a way that I haven't before. I mean, um, but yeah, it's it's hard for me not to associate old age with a certain, you know, just discomfort, physical discomfort too. Yeah, I think that's yeah totally natural. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, because that ages. Um, I will say you're doing a really good job of so I've done a hundred of these. Yeah. Um, I saw that. Yeah. And anything you do that much, you're not going to be remembering the initial impulse the whole time. Right. It's not going to be like, you know, it's doing stand up. It's not going to feel like the first time every time. Right. But there is part of where this show comes from is a panic. Yeah. Um, I don't do this show because I have answers. I do it because there is genuinely a part of me that believes that if I keep doing it enough, someone will give me the answer (laughs) that I, that like solves everything. Interesting. Thinking of life as a problem that requires a single answer is its own problem. (laughs) But, but I will say that you have connected me with the panic in a way that I haven't experienced in a long time. (laughs) Just thinking. And, and I think what it was is thinking about, when you said you've never experienced a pleasure that hasn't had a beginning, middle and end. And it makes me think of trips and, and uh, I don't know why I've been saying the word lover unironically recently. I don't love it, but I'll say trips and lovers Mm -hmm. and like moments when you're like in love with someone and you're just uh, you're, you're, you're in a place with them there's something about the environment that's really appealing. Maybe the sun or there's rain or whatever that you're just like this moment, right? Yeah. Or you're on a trip. And for me, it's when you're coming home from a trip and you're like, I'm just on the other side of what was this moment and how sad that is. Yeah. Um, and, and being in this moment and knowing it won't last forever. I think that is the source of the panic. Yeah. And and I think part of what makes those moments so intense is that simultaneously you're experiencing them and beginning to grieve their eventual end. Uh, Yeah. Right. And, but, but I think one of the great liberations in my personal life, and I I think this is what keeps me, you know, I, I always joke like there's a God out there, blah, blah, blah. But I do believe there's a God out there actually. Like at the end of the day, what returns me to some kind of, is like, I find it comforting that instead of ending on this note of like sadness that things end to find relief in that, 
to just be like, it actually, it's okay. Like everything passes. And like, so we have this saying in the Muslim tradition where it's like, and it's very like Sufis, Sufis say this a lot, like meditate on this. And there's all these this poetry and whatever, but there's this thing about like that everything perishes except God or whatever. Right, not or whatever, except God. (laughs) I don't know why I felt the need to do that. Like, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this way in which, especially if you're in intellectual spaces, like you feel like silly talking about religion or faith. But Mm, um, so I I have, I find myself very intellectual space. By the way, yeah, the the afterlife comedy podcast is very. very (laughs) I can, I can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, but that everything perishes and. And I think, yeah, I I think that that's, um, there's great perspective in that and the great relief in that, you know, it's like, it is the anti-narcissist thing, you know, it's just like, it all ends, including me, including this, like, so enjoy it, you know? I want to ask you about funeral planning. Tell me. Will you tell me? Do you, do you, do you have? <laughs> I mean, ask thoughts? me. Uh, I'm asking you now. This. Do, what are your plans? Do you have any? Have you thought about it? What would you? You know, anything you've got planned out or anything you've been meditating on? I want to hear it. You know, I um, I. I I think you know it's funny. I've never actually thought about my own funeral, like really until this moment. Um, so no, I don't have plans and perhaps that's irresponsible. Um, but, um, again, I think, I think, well, so the way that I grew up, funerals are a collective responsibility. So there's in, in, again, in, in the tradition that I grew up in, a funeral is so there's different types of responsibilities right there's responsibilities that are held by the individual and there are responsibilities that are held by the community so what that means is if no one is in the in the community is meeting this communal responsibility then everyone is seen as like sinning or or in fault in front of god but as long wow. as somebody's doing it then like <laughs> Okay. then everybody's okay. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, there's yeah. actually this sense of collective responsibility towards things. And so burying the dead, washing the dead, um, like doing the rituals around death is one of these collective responsibility things. And my mother is someone who's pretty like learned in our tradition. And so she's someone who would help wash folks in the community who, who died. Um, and she, so she taught me from a very early age that she was like, there's nothing, we don't fear de- the dead, right? Like we, we, and actually I, I, I drew on this in one of the chapters in the novel, you know, when uh, Bilkis Chodri, you know, her, her mother dies and she doesn't get the rituals. Yeah. 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 And, and it's like, there's this sense that like, that the dead like deserve dignity and are not to be feared or like cast aside. And so, you know, there's this thing of like lovingly washing the body and, and then, you know, you're wrapped in cotton. We don't do coffins, you know, you're wrapped in cotton and like that basically disintegrates as you disintegrate into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're buried quickly, like within a couple of days. Um, so we don't also do the like, Yeah. So there's no such thing as like putting makeup or preserving, like there's no attempt to preserve the body. Um, And so that's what I would want. You know, I would want to, I would want for my, for my, I I would want someone to do those rituals for me and to take care of me in that way and to return me to the soil. Um, And again, like when I think about that, it doesn't actually really make me sad. It just makes me like, it gives me a sense of like peace and relief to think that like one day I will return to the soil and like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, there is something really beautiful about, and my knowledge of this extends basically to like watching Rami and (laughs) reading the autobiography of Malcolm X is like the extent of my, those are two great. That's great. (laughs) There are much worse sources out there. Sure. 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 But the uh, 
the washing is yeah. such a beautiful um uh and th- and there's actually a um I forget what denomination he is maybe like a presbyterian or like a quaker minister named parker mm-hmm. palmer who writes about depression a lot mm-hmm. and he talks about a friend who came over and would just wash his feet every day mm-hmm. and that like care to the sensual is so um which is funny because I guess there is some of that in Christianity, but coming from a like evangelical Christian tradition, mm-hmm. water was like a fucking like it's like a fire hose, like a cleansing force. You know what uh, I mean? It's yeah. like a it's like a scrape away the sin sort of force. But yeah. like, I, and I don't know, maybe it is that in the Muslim tradition a little bit too. But it's it seems not- like so much care and so beautiful. Yeah, and I think I mean for us like washing is such a huge part of also day-to-day life because you know you're supposed to pray five times a day and you have to be ritually clean so you have to do this specific wash called the wudu and you know you're supposed to just you know and it's and it's very like you know if you if you take classes on it it's like it's very symbolic you know it's like you wash your hands and when you're washing your hands you're sort of like kind of letting the like the bad things melt away and then Mm -hmm. you know you wash your face and that's like a cleansing and you you know you wash your arms and you wash your feet and so there's this kind of relationship with water and with purification as ritual right like the idea that um yeah so the kind of like the idea of like bodily bodily cleansing as a part of a sort of like ritual engagement you know um and when my mom would talk about washing these bodies, she was talking, you know, there's a lot of like instruction on how to do it. And it's all mm-hmm. about like gentleness and sort of like, you know, and that, and that, um, you know, and you like perfume the body, like not like with like crazy yeah. synthetic yeah. stuff, but like, you know, right. like, like, uh, like natural oils or things like that. So it's just like, it feels very honoring, um, uh, but also a farewell you know so you would be fine with a traditional muslim funeral and burial yeah i mean i, I yeah not just fine i i, I want a traditional, yeah 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 okay, yeah okay okay i want a traditional um muslim funeral <laughs> right. and, and burial and hope that i whenever i pass away it's in a context where there are the people who can who can do that you know for me um and it's yeah. not it's not generally I don't know how it is in the Muslim world, but maybe because we're in diaspora in the U.S., but it's not generally commercialized in the same way. That is amazing. Yeah, it's just like people in the community who who know how to do it, just come together and do it. It's not like an industry. It's so funny because, you know, I, I know I've had Muslim guests in the past, but I haven't. No one, no, I've never not gone this deep on it with anyone, yeah. I don't think. Um, but it is the thing that a lot of people want. A lot of people talk about wanting it to be simple, wanting it to not be a burden on their family, yeah. especially financially, wanting to be just like placed in the ground and, um, I mean, there's also a lot of talk of this. I don't know if you know the Corpus Mundi egg thing that people can be put into in a tree. It's like filled with nutrients that like a tree grows out of. So it's like an individual tree, like growing from your body, which is also interestingly individual in its own way. But, um, but there's a lot of talk of that. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's so funny that, that so many people from outside the Muslim tradition have ideas of what they want and there's been this whole tradition yeah this whole time can i be petty for a second oh Um, please yes because this is the shit that drives me crazy (laughs) because i remember a few years ago there was like this article about like the new revolution and like death and it was all like you know like do away with the coffins like love the body bury people quickly and I was like excuse me like this is like when like you know this is like when white people are like I've discovered a small chickpea fritter 
called falafel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) ma'am. Like Like the Coachellification of Muslim burial, right? Yeah, I'm just like, uh, sit down, please, immediately. (laughs) I cannot take this. I'm like, I can't do this. Oh, my God. So, yeah, no, but, yeah. Wow. that was just me p- being petty. I apologize. Please, My people have no, earned pettiness no after Absolutely. so much colonialism. I'm just... I don't think you need to earn pettiness. I think pettiness is all of our rights as a human. That's the I thing. That. I, that's what I would change about the book. I need more gossip, more <laughs> uh, more drama. Uh, a lot of people talk about being above drama. You know, they've transcended. But I want to give me the fucking. You want the give tea. Me the polycule drama. You yeah, know? yeah. You want the tea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The polycule drama, especially. I'm like, you don't have a society of like communes and free love without without some serious drama. But right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's there. My next question is more of a prompt, and this is where we're getting into the nostalgia. Heavy. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. From my last one man show, which is what this podcast grew out of, mm. it's set in the afterlife. And I'm kind of telling people about the rules of it. And one of those features is that you get to relive one memory. It's just like a room you can pop into and out of whenever you want. If that were the case, what memory would you choose? Um, I would pick. So my grandfather, uh, my mother grew up in Alexandria and my grandfather had this little um, apartment on the outside of the city in this kind of seaside town. So a lot of people, you know, they would have these little apartments and they would go uh, for to go to the beach so that they're not going to the beach in the city. Um, so it was about an hour out of the city and my cousins and I, when when we when I was a child, my cousins and I, um, and my grandfather and my mom and all the adults, we would like pack up the car and drive out to this little apartment. And it was very cabiny. It's like it's like the Egyptian version of a cabin. You know, it was like this little weird apartment. It had this little courtyard, and my grandfather had built all the furniture, and it had this little black and white TV that's like, you know, and that you literally had to hit. Um, in yeah, order to yeah, get it to yeah, work yeah. and um, yeah we would pack sandwiches and we would spend like a few days there and we would just go first thing in the morning would we wake up and we'd be so excited about going to the beach you know and we'd walk like I don't know it was like half a mile or something from the apartment to the beach and we'd just like walk out to the Mediterranean and then spend all day swimming in the water and then um you know and my grandma would have packed these sandwiches with like fava beans and um other things that egyptians eat (laughs) (laughs) what other things give me the other things well sometimes there were these um these egg and um we call basterma it's like it's kind of like pastrami i guess or I think it's a, it's it's a cured beef, um, okay. and it's often made with eggs, um, and so those would be in like little pita pockets, um, and then the fava beans, sometimes like cheese and cucumbers, like this like okay. white feta, something like feta but much creamier, um, yeah, and and they would pack these big a big thermos of tea. And um, watermelon seeds, like toasted, like salted, roasted watermelon seeds, which Egyptians eat. It's kind of like pumpkin seeds, um, but they're much smaller and, in my opinion, yummier. Um, And, like, basically eating them as a national sport (laughs) in Egypt. It's just like, um, yeah, and we would just hang out in the water until we were so hungry. And then we'd come out and eat these sandwiches, you know. And it would be like the most satisfying meal of your life, you know? Um, and like, did you have to wait? Did they have rules about waiting from when you got out of the water? Yeah. You had to wait okay. like 15, 20 minutes because there was okay. always that one adult who was like, you're going to throw up, you know? Right, right, right. And right, so right. we'd like play in the sand and um, my uncle would like always do these like funny uh flip like he would be like play he'd like make up these games like where we'd like 
climb on his shoulder and like flip off into the water and like uh-huh, things like that uh-huh. you know like yeah. he just always came up with some weird thing for us to do yeah um yeah and then like you know in the like late afternoon we would just all go back and like shower and take these glorious afternoon naps you know and then hang out all night in the courtyard playing like cards eat dinner like play cards um tell stories like you know chill um, it sounds like a thing. So first of all, let me confirm that this is a a type of day of which you don't even feel the need to pick a specific one. You're yeah. Just like, any one of, we did this enough. Any one of these would be what I would do. Yep. 100%. And yeah. it sounds like a thing someone would make up as their ideal day. <laughs> right. But you got to live it. I got to live it. And I my childhood was pretty tumultuous. Um, and so it's like really when I think of being a child and having joy, it's in this very specific context. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I got to live it. And and I loved it then. Like I, you know, and I, and I love it now. And to this day, beaches... I mean, I, it's never the same as that, but like a beach makes me happier than any other thing in the world. Um, I, I think in part, cause it just kind of recalls some of this joy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember the color of the water? I do. It's a very specific color to the Mediterranean where, well, the Mediterranean, it changes based on like the weather and stuff, but it's this kind of, it's not like quite like the turquoise. It's like, it's a sort of like, almost like a, it's like a blue green, you know? Um, and there's like waves. Um, yeah. Really blue skies. Yeah. And who, and who, what's the crew you're rolling with here? How deep? So it's my, grandmother and grandfather my mother my sister and my aunt my mom's sister and her kids and though there's she has four kids um okay because they had an her my aunt had an apartment similar to my grandfather's just like a few doors down so when we all would go we would hang out at my grandfather's with my grandmother like me my mom and my sister would hang out with my, at my grandfather's apartment and where we refer to it as the chalet <laughs> but of course yeah yeah but you know this is a remnant of french colonialism that there's all this french <laughs> french and arabic um mixed but yeah right. so right. the chalet and we had a song oh my gosh i forgot about the song there was a song where we would because as we were approaching this um this like little seaside town um there was this like particular gate that we would go through. And once we went through that gate, we knew we were like there and like, we were only like five, 10 minutes away. And then the kids would start singing the song <laughs> and the song just consisted of us saying in Arabic, like we've arrived at the chalet, <laughs> you know, at the chalet or whatever. Wait, so how did it go? It, are you like, comfortable? Yeah. The it song? would be like, wasal nashali, wasal <laughs> <laughs> Yes. It was more like a chant, frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, like, sure, sure. We're here. Like, we did it. Um, and so we would start singing this song. Um, and it was just, yeah. My family still will say that. Like, whenever we've arrived somewhere, we'll say, like, as if, like, yes. like we, we know we've arrived, even though, you know, these apartments are long gone. What's your coma? And I ask you that question because I was in a coma for a month and that's what uh, gave rise to a bunch of this shit. And it doesn't need to be some dramatic moment, but I'm just asking you about a similarly transformative moment for you Mm. where 
you before you were one version of yourself and after you were another. It could be very mundane. Okay. What if it's very intense? <laughs> Great. Intense is intense is totally fine, but I'm also like uh I, I, I'm not trained in being trauma informed, but no, I, I know. I've my partner did a trauma informed yoga program, so I listened to enough of the classes that I've got Osmosis, like a, yeah. A half certification in trauma informed totally. interviewing. So uh it can be intense, absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay, so I've always had a big history of depression, and I, um, when I was in my second year of grad school, I was going through a really major depressive episode, um, partially triggered by um, the fact that I basically was had been for a couple of years leading a double life <laughs> in the sense that I you know, had come from a, a very, had grown up in a very close-knit Muslim community and came from a very practicing Muslim background and had kind of moved away from that personally and was having a really hard time effectively coming out about that to my family and to my community. And so for a while I did this, and it felt really impossible at the time. I really thought that I would lose these relationships. I thought that mm. Like I had a lot of existential crisis already about whether I was doing the right things, but I also just had a lot of fear that I would like lose my community and my family. And so I had this big, and I, I just was getting more and more depressed. Um, and at the time I hadn't really started therapy. You know, I, I like really had, wasn't doing the things. Um, mm -hmm. And this all my, this all culminated in a suicide attempt um, in my second year of grad school. Um, and cause I just saw no way out, you know, I just, I like, was like, I can't. And um, when I came out of that, I ended up getting hospitalized for a few days, um, like in, in a psych ward. And um, when I came out of it, I just realized that I just had to, just face like that, that this was a matter of life or death and that I just had to just live authentically, you know, like that I basically had to just face the music um, about all the things and just trust that people. So part of what happened is that my family came through for me in a really big way. And I think they, mm. and I think, when I came out of it, I realized like, oh, they're here. They're still here. You know, like they're not. They came through like when you were hospitalized. Yeah, they were. Okay. You know, my mom flew in. My sister came and spent weeks with me. Everybody was just very like supportive. And there wasn't as much of the kind of pressure around like, you should do this. You should do that. It was just very like, you do you to be okay. Like we realize yeah. now that this is very serious what you're going through. Right. And that opened up space for me to just be like, okay. And um, after that, everything shifted. Like it totally reoriented my entire relationship with myself and with other people where I was just like, I'm going to do what I think is right. And I'm going to be honest about it. And if people want to stay, they can stay. And if they can't, then I like, I can understand that. And it's not, I'm not going to like shove things in people's face that they don't want to, you know, like I don't go out of my way to upset people or anything, but I just, yeah. and I show up, you know, I'm like, and, um, I didn't lose my family. I didn't lose my community. Um, I, you know, it has like, there are hard moments and, um, you know, things are different than they were when I wore hijab and when I, you know, when I was like more practicing than I am now. Um, but yeah, I, it really made me very averse to lying. <laughs> um, very averse to any kind of like hiding. I mean, here I am on a podcast telling a story of an attempted suicide. Sure, um, sure. but you know, it just, it just totally like reoriented me around, really trying to figure out what I wanted to do and how to do it and how to, how to manage relationships around me, not in a way that I had to like present different versions of myself to everyone, but rather that I could just bring myself as much of myself as possible into whatever yeah. room I was in. 
Um, was it like, so it was like before you would be at school without a hijab and then when you went home or to the mosque, you would wear the hijab. Yeah. So I did that okay. for a while. I mean, at some point, I, at this point I was living in New York, so I had taken it off, but didn't post anything on social media because my family is mm. in Missouri and, um, and I had a kind of pseudo public profile in the Muslim community because I was an activist. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't like post anything on social media. And if I were around certain people, I would wear it. Um, and it was just kind of the daily pretense, right. Of like, if I'm around certain people and I like at that time, I had a lot of questioning about my faith and I'm actually more, much more religious than I now that I, than I was back then. But, um, you know, I, you know, I like, you know, I would pretend to pray or like, I would pretend not to do certain things, you know, or I would like, if someone like, I would just kind of perform a version of myself that wasn't real. Um, and I, um, yeah, I stopped doing that. <laughs> I just was like, here it is. Like I am who I am. Wow. It's what, it's what, cause this is, this story gets very easily mapped onto um, people coming out as queer yeah. or trans or um, j- just just a lot of stories that have external markers that are like you know someone's like I'm trans and when I finally right before I came out I had a suicide attempt. There's, yeah. there's some like if you're in the right if you're in the right circles, there's some familiarity to that as a yeah. story. The wake up call moment. Right. But what you're describing is so much subtler in a way. Um, And it's wild how like insidious it still was, even though it was like, quote, like just a religious awakening, you know? Yeah. No, it it is. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I'm writing a book about why it is that, people's relationships with Muslim communities are gendered. (laughs) Um, My academic book is about this. And I think that uh, I think for a lot of like immigrant communities um, and minority communities, there's this sense of like a threat that there's this feeling that like we could lose our entire identity. Like we could just melt into the crowd and then we would cease to exist in the ways that we we are. And the burden of no longer Muslim. Yeah, or like that, you know, we would assimilate. I mean, you see this in the Jewish community all the time, right? Like this kind of fear that like with enough intermarriage, with enough time, whatever, Mm -hmm. like the the traditions Mm -hmm. are going to get lost Mm -hmm. and we're just going to kind of melt into society and, um, you know, get get kind of swallowed up by Christianity or by secular culture or by both or whatever. And I think that in the Muslim community, there is that fear. And I think like in many communities, the kind of like work of maintaining those boundaries goes to women. Um, And so there's a lot of emphasis on what women do and what they wear. And, and I don't think it has anything to do with Islam necessarily as a religion. It has more to do with this kind of impulse that we have that almost every society has had to like police moral boundaries around women and what they do. Um, And of course it takes different forms for different communities. And, um, but so I think that's part of it. Um, but yeah, it's funny because I am queer and I am out to my family. And I always joke that like coming out about being queer was like easier because I had already come out about all this other stuff. Like, you know, yeah. I had, I had yeah. already been coming out to my family for like 10 years about everything else, <laughs> you know? Where They're like, like, okay, what is it this time? Exactly. I Literally, my mother has said that to me. She's like, what is it this time? Like when I got my first tattoo and I was like, mama, I need to tell you something. (laughs) She's like, God, what what is it? We've (laughs) walked off six hours of the day before you leave for whatever stuff. For the next revelation. Yeah. Yeah, And I was like, I know you don't like it. I know you don't agree. I got a tattoo. And then she's like, she said what she always says. She's like you're free to do what you want with yourself and we will all stand before God. I'm like, we sure will. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, is there, am I reading it right? That there's a little bit of like passive aggression. Oh, absolutely. There's huge shade. 
And, you know, my retort is always like, yeah, we are. I just don't think God thinks the way you do. You know, like, yeah, I'm like, yeah. I don't I don't think God agrees with you. But I agree. We are all free and we will all stand before God. So it's, <laughs> it's her way of being like, I'm not the one that's meant to judge you. God is, you know, and yes, I'm like, sure. Yes. I'll take that. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather face God than face You're my You're like, mother. okay, we're, we're wagering here a little bit. I've, my money's on my God. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'm like the God I believe in is a lot less terrifying than my 411 immigrant mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Iman, and thanks to, coming up later this week, Emmy O'Brien. Stay tuned for that episode. Again, subscribe to the show. If you haven't, leave a review in Apple. Those are awesome, very encouraging. Tell a real-life friend, and if you don't like the show, just take that to your grave. So until next week, remember, you are a mist. You can do them, have faith, you're human.